at, uh, not Leviticus, we're at Exodus 12, verse 37 through 42. Exodus 12, verse 37 to 42. We have just finished, last week, the last of um, our study on the ten plagues. And we begin the Exodus. The Exodus. Think about this. Freedom from centuries of slavery. One without a single shot being fired, without a blade being drawn, without the payment of money to their masters to be able to get out. They're free. And this night, the journey begins. Let's, uh, let's look at uh, Exodus twelve thirty seven. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramesses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. So the journey begins... And where does it begin from? What's significant about that? Chapter 1, verse 11 of Exodus tells us that they were working on some things. Why is starting from this city significant? Jeff. Right. The name of the city is the name of a pharaoh. They were building... This is where they were being oppressed. It's a city of their oppression. So they're starting their journey with the city they had built as slaves in the rearview mirror. Think of the memories that they're leaving behind. Just think about that. It's night. You're... you're walking through this land in which you've been oppressed, behind you is centuries of memories, family history, that you're leaving behind. History of slavery. I mean, how many uncles had they never known because they'd been tossed in the river when they were babies? How many great uncles had they never known because they'd been tossed in the river as babies? How many fathers had they lost because being beaten to death by slave masters. And now they're leaving that. It's behind them. They hadn't fired a single shot. They hadn't drawn a single sword. 
and they're leaving. There are probably people walking with them with limps, bearing marks on their bodies from the oppression of slavery. And it's behind them. They're leaving. What do you think the mood would be? Just imagine. Get out of the mindset of American freedom for a second. Put yourself in their place. What would you What would you think they would be feeling? Yeah, I think it'd be surreal. I think I think I'd be thinking they're gonna come get me as soon as they possibly can. I, I wouldn't have accepted that this was freedom yet. I'd be like, but we're still enslaved. They're gonna come get us. I mean, what now? What now is a good question. Yeah. So the feelings can't be real. Something's gonna happen. What now? Say we make it out past you know the border. What what's going to happen then? Are we going to be enslaved by another nation? They're passing by as they're traveling from, and this is not a short journey. It's kind of a hike um, southeast from where they were. Um, as they're traveling, they're passing, especially when they get to the Succoth area. They're passing the passing. They're passing. <laughs> Don't laugh at me, Nathaniel. They're passing these military compounds, right? This isn't real. We're passing these military... Are they going to come out now? They're passing these huge temples built to these gods that had been shamed openly by the plagues we've just gone over. All this stuff is in in the midst of where they're going. and, and, And in the middle of all of that... The might and power of Egypt is hushed, right? It's nighttime. They're dealing with their own grief from the slaughter of their own children, their own relatives. In the midst of that, you hear the quiet shuffle of feet, maybe, the bleeding of goats that just don't ever stop, and the, 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 the hushed whispers, maybe the excited whispers of people in, the, in walking this journey at night. The text tells us about 600,000 men plus women and children. Um, That's a lot of people. Scholars estimate that, if you do count the women and children together, they they estimate anywhere from between 2 and 3 million people on this journey. There's this mention of a, a mixed multitude with them. What is that in reference to? What do you think? A mixed multitude. Didn't some of the Egyptians go with them? Yeah. Yeah, these are people who are not Israelites joining themselves. It, this term here is actually a Hebrew term um, that, that means one who is not part of the nation joining themselves to the nation. Foreigners traveling with them. Various kinds of people uh, who, who, who join themselves to Israel who are not part of Israel. Why would they do that? It's a picture of all the way the New Testament uses all will be saved. Yeah? The whole earth. Every demographic. Also, you just kind of done for it. I don't know. I think it could also have been that there was no other. There was no Right, and, and that's that's a good point. I was reading through some of the timelines of Egyptian history. After this point, 
Egypt never becomes a world power again. I mean, they're, I, that's not fair. They're strong, but they're never like Roman strong or you know, Babylonian strong. At this time, they were. Or what? Or USA strong. Well, there's nothing in comparison. Um, so you, you have this sense of demise in Egypt. And so there may be, hey, let's follow the people of hope here. They're, they're going somewhere. Well, some of that's true. Some of that's true. We'll see later where it's uh, some of these people are called the rabble, where they incite uh, the people to be um, discontent with what God is providing, and the whole thing with quail comes out of that. Some of these people are involved in that, but the 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 point is, they're they're Genesis. Is being fulfilled, right? What the promise to Abraham that you'll be a blessing to all nations. In the striking of Egypt, these people are joining them, learning about God, not Ra, but Yahweh. So you have um, a fulfillment, a type of fulfillment of that. All right, verse thirty-nine. The first leg of their journey. What are they eating? Unleavened bread. We talked about this a little bit before. What reasons are given for their having to, to resort to, to flatbread? Time, no time for preparation. What else? God worded. God said, "Don't do it." Okay. Okay. What? 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 Right. <laughs> yeah, I know we're free. <laughs> But the bread. Have you have you had fresh bread? <laughs> so they're leaving fast, and they can't make provision for themselves, right? They didn't make provision for themselves. It says in Egypt they couldn't wait or linger for, for to rise because they're Egypt, they were thrust out of Egypt. They're simply unprepared for this spontaneous nature of their leaving. And isn't it interesting how when the Spirit of God calls us out of darkness into light, out of Egypt into Canaan, sort of journeying to Canaan, um, calls us into fellowship with Christ, we're simply unprepared. I mean, when you become a Christian, do you know everything at once? You get it all together? You do now, though, right? I mean, but God provides what? He provides unleavened, the unleavened bread of His Word, the pure bread of His Word that we're to eat on, that we're to feast on, and sometimes along the way, we get, I don't know, stuck in a place and let the bread rise. I don't know what, what, what take that metaphor however you want, but um, we, we try to add on other things to make ourselves feel more called or more Christian. When it's the word that he gives us, the unleavened bread of his word that we're to feast on during the journey. All right. Look at 40 and 41. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Why is this little detail mentioned? That seems like an odd... If you add 4 and 3, you get 7, which is the number of... <laughs> and if you turn it backwards, <laughs> interpret it, you get Obama. <laughs> I heard a I heard a uh, legitimate answer in the back of the room. 
Other than the fact that in numerology it equals Obama. Um, what, Grant, what did you say? <laughs> what prophecy? What prophecy? Obama was... Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't, there's something in the water today. I don't know what the deal is. But um, what, what, is the, what is the prophecy? What is this prophecy of which you speak? No. <laughs> Genesis? Yeah, Genesis 15, 13. And God basically said, I don't think he basically said, he said, for 130 years, you'll be enslaved. Well, interesting. Turn back to Genesis, turn to Genesis 15, 13. And read to me what it says. Then the Lord said to Abram, no, we're certain that your offspring that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Uh-oh. Is God miscalculating by 30 years? <clears throat> they weren't necessarily enslaved to the born of Egypt, right? So they lived, um, they lived in Egypt for 430 years, right? Okay. Is that totally off? Well, no. Right. So they were afflicted for 400 years. Okay. If you want to go beyond that, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think, again, this is the kind of silliness that you'll see with hypercritical people of the, of the Bible. Uh, I even read an article last night about how they... Um, well, if you really count the genealogies, given the most number possible, it's really 354 years and... Well, no. I mean, you have... Anyway, there are reasonable explanations to make it harmonious, to make it... to, to, to reconcile these different numbers. There's always... Given the, the benefit of the doubt that someone is consistent in telling the truth like you would with any other book, any other literature, you can reconcile it. An easy way to say it is the 400 years is a general term, about 400 years. You just say it that way. Whereas this verse is very specific. On that very day, 430 years. Both are referenced by the New Testament. Stephen, in his sermon uh, in Acts 7, I believe, talks about about 400 years that we were enslaved in Egypt. Paul, in Galatians, says the law was given 430 years after the promise to to Abraham or, or you know that that length of time. So you have a wide range of of a uh, view there on on what this means and and how it works, and it all makes sense. It all yes. Well, when Joseph brought his family to Egypt, they didn't come as slaves, but soon after it says a Pharaoh rose up who did not know Joseph, right, and put the family in slavery. That could have been. 30 years that had gone by. Certainly. So they had been in Egypt for 430 years, but it says they will be afflicted for 400 years. So we have, what, four different options that we've discussed so far, how this is harmonious. You'll have a guy like Ehrman, Bart Ehrman, who was just, ah, 430. Yeah. It also says four generations. Sure. And so, I mean, 
I think people that get all upset and stuff, it doesn't say 429 years. It doesn't say right. 31. It's not, it's not a specific thing. It's rounded to the nearest hundred. Well, in Genesis, but it says on that very day for this part of it. So I think it's a little bit more specific here. And, and Paul's very specific in how, he's, how he says 430. But the point is that you can reconcile these things charitably without, oh, it's not true, you know, just because you have different numbers. There's ways to to look at this and see it that it's it's not being contradictory. All right. 400 my general view is is that 400 is a rounded number while 430 is the more exact. Now here's the thing that uh, if you're doing a one to one study you'd say what struck you? This is what struck me, verse 42. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What does that tell you about the character of God? I mean, you have here this two to three million numbered group of people traveling through the land of their oppression, probably thinking, is this really true? Is this gonna something's gonna happen? And yet the the writer of Exodus steps back and says, It was a night of watching by the Lord. What is he watching? What does that I mean it's not like, you know, Edward just watching over Bella and it's kind of creepy looking at him, but what what does that mean? The watching It's a it's a it's not even guarding, right? Moving, working. In the nighttime, what's the contrast to? What do we talked about? What, what, what did we talk about with, with the Egyptian theology? That their gods are asleep. They're in, um, well, that's a Greek term, Hades. But anyway, they're in the underworld. Um, and, but God doesn't sleep or slumber. That's the character of God reflected here. He's always working for his people. He's always defending them guarding them, moving on their behalf. He never sleeps or slumbers. Protection of his people is paramount. Has he changed? Do you see here that there's not a great divide between the Old Testament and New Testament as it expresses the character and heart of God? He's the same. What is Israel to do in response? What 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 is what is their this is a cultural thing for them? It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. What does it say? So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. What's their response to his protection, to his guarding, to his watching over them when no one else will? What, what's his response? What's to remember. It's to worship. Worship. Remembrance. Um, continue to watch. What are they watching for? What are they watching over? It's more to be attentive to what God has planned. If he says something, it's going to happen. They're watching him. Their eyes are on him. Good. 
when I was reading this and, and, and thinking through this, um, I thought about another night of watching. I, get, I bet you wonder where that is. Uh, Mark 14, 34 through 40. If you want to do a one-to-one, Mark's a great book to do it. It's the No Frills Gospel. He's in Gethsemane. Jesus, in verse 34, And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but you, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words, and not and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough, the hour has come, the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, my betrayers at hand. What's he calling on them to watch? They to watch over him? What is he calling on them to watch? To guard? Their faith. Well, yeah. Yeah? In what way? He's uh, calling them to just be watchful and not be led to temptation. Something's about to happen. It's kind of a significant event. And he says, watch over yourselves. Watch and pray. What is the act of prayer? What is that? Oh God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I Is that prayer? Maybe to yourself? What is prayer? Communicating with God. Communicating with God for what, in what way? Is it tuning yourself to God's will. Okay. Humbling before God? Dependence. Dependence? Thankful pleading. Yes. I'm deficient in something. I'm finite. You're infinite. I am needy and poor. You are rich and watching over me. That's prayer. We're not telling God anything He doesn't know when we pray, right? I mean, He kind of. God. We pray to orient and to to remind ourselves that we're dependent upon Him for the breath that we breathe. And so when He's saying watch and pray, He's saying guard something. The Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Guard something. What What is He saying for them to guard? What temptation are they about to 
could they enter into? I mean, to, to what? To run, away. to run away. It's too hard. It's too scary. It's too countercultural. Watch and pray. <clears throat> Turn to John 17. Do they succeed in their watchfulness? No. Yes, there's someone who does. <laughs> I, I, I got to tell you, I go back to this chapter in John again and again and again and again. This is one of the most beautiful passages to, to me in Scripture. What you have here is a peek behind the veil of the Son talking to the Father unedited. It just doesn't say and he went in the mountain and prayed with Jesus. Jesus prayed for, for a night. You see what's going on here. An extended discussion or a, an extended monologue of, of Christ before the night he's betrayed revealing his heart of watchfulness over his people. When Jesus had spoken, they're at the Last Supper, right? They've just done communion, the thing that we do. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Ponder that for a while, but not right now. And this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. There's a good definitional sentence. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested, this is the part I want to focus on right here. I have manifested your name to the people who gave, whom you gave me out of the world. Well, there that, there's that giving again. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me. And they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Now look at this. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. But for those whom you have given me. For they are yours. All mine are yours. And yours are mine. And I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Do, do you see what's going on there? 
He's facing the cross. Tim and I were talking last night. He's probably seen this before. I mean, that's kind of the punishment that was very open and visual. He knows what's coming, at least from an objective standpoint, not having felt it, wondering what that's going to feel like maybe in his humanity. And instead of, I don't want this to happen, he's praying to God, I have kept them in your name. But I'm, in, again, this is the mysterious part of the, 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 the nature of Christ being fully human, fully divine. But there's a sense in this where there's some kind of concern of his that while he's on the cross, going through what he's going to go through, he may not be able to guard them. And later on you'll see, guard us. What does he say? I am no longer in the world. I am coming to you. Keep them in your name. Do you see that? The concern of Christ to keep them kept, to keep you kept. This is the nature of God for His people. To love His people, to guard His people, to watch over His people. Even at the point of the cross, especially at the point of the cross, keep them. I'm about to leave the world. They're, they're still going to be here. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, <clears throat> which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Do you see what's going on here? He's he's praying to the Father to keep his people as he's facing the cross. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Here's where you come in. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one. And this is phenomenal. Just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. Let that sink in. That they may be one, even as we are one. Think about that. Has that been realized in the church? (laughs) That they may be one even as we are one. Keep them. Guard them. And this is the goal. To reflect the nature of the Trinity Himself in the body of Christ. 
That's what the guarding is. And when we're keeping and we're watching and we're doing what Christ has commanded us to do, and we'll see later, Paul talks about our response to this. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. 1 Peter 5.8 um, uh, In 2 John, uh, watch yourself so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. Keep watch. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. 1 Corinthians 16.13 Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it, with thanksgiving. What we see here in Exodus, where they kept this constant, every year they would keep this night of watching in worship and thankfulness, remembering what God had done for them, on bringing them out of their slavery. Paul and Peter and John are saying to us, do the same thing. Remember what he did for you. Be watchful over how you live your life, how you are it's consistent in prayer, dependent upon God for something you can't do on your own. Which is, love your brothers and sisters in Christ like, and be one with them as the Father is with the Son. That's, that's what we're called to be. That's what we're called to do. Any Any questions? I went on a monologue. Sorry. Any questions? I, I will tell you, just, just from a specifically to this group, I, I am thankful when I see you guys interact with one another. How you love to hang out together. Even even I know, this is odd. Even when I don't plan something, because I don't do that. But you guys do. You come up with things and you do things together. I pray that continues. I pray that that continues not just as a social unit thing. I pray that continues toward this end. That as you play volleyball, you play it to the glory of God, dependent upon Him that when somebody spikes a ball into your forehead, you continue to love them as Father loves the Son. Right? And when we have things that come up, that will come up, where somebody's at odds for whatever reason, we remember this, that we're watchful, that we guard our hearts, that we pray through things to love one another as the Father and the Son are one. I, that's, you get a group like this, and that's my, that's my joy, and that's also my concern, that we continue to grow unified and loving one another in spite of all of our flaws, in spite of my flaws. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men or women. And be strong. Be strong. All right, let's pray. Father, it's a humbling thing to read through this high priestly prayer of Christ. And realize how often we don't live up to that goal and ideal of being one as you are one with the Son. Forgive us, God. 
when we fail to consider one another better than ourselves, when we fail to strive to outdo one another in, in good works, in service to each other. Jesus said that the world will know that we're his disciples by the love we have for one another. I pray, Father, that in this group that you continue to grow them, to unify them, to cause them to love one another in Christ, not just as a group that's fun to hang out with, but more than that, brothers and sisters, family in Christ. And that that would spill over to other people to invite in and so that worship will continue to grow in our midst because of the joy that you have brought in in us through Christ and what he's done for us. Father, keep us from idols. And let us not fear the culture. Let us not fear the pressures of our own emotions that sometimes get out of whack. But let's trust you. Focus on you, following you straight in our journey to your promised inheritance, which is Christ. What a greater promise. What what greater promise is there than to see him and be made like him for we will see him as he is. In his name we pray, amen.